Hello everyone, welcome to episode 17 of the Melbourne Adiverse User Group podcast. I am your host today, Arjen Swartz, and today is a special episode as we'll be discussing the news of not just a single month, but of both July and August. Now, to be fair, both months were pretty light and exciting news, but we'll take you through that anyway, and to do so, I've got our usual friends along. Guy Morton. Hello. And Jean-Manuel Becker. Hello, everyone. Thank you to be listening again. So, without further ado, let's get into it, and we'll start with finally in Sydney. What do we have this month that's exciting? We always like the new new instance types, Arjen, so you must be excited about that. We've got the ml.inf1 instances available now for SageMaker. These are the inferentia chip-based, optimized for machine learning instances. So, if you're doing machine learning, definitely worth having a look at. Yeah, yeah they can deliver up to 2.3 higher throughput and up to 70% lower cost per inference, comparable to other GPUs. So I had a look at pricing, the four CPU I gig memory, it's uh, 28 cents. And uh, the, the big one with 24 X large is $5.90 an hour with 96 CPU and uh, almost 200 gig of memory. You can apply though for $400 AWS credit if you have a good reason to use them and to test them with SageMaker. So give it a go. That should last you about three minutes. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm exaggerating for effect. That's right. Um, the other, uh, I guess the thing that that that, uh, that I thought was probably most significant around the finally in Sydney is the cross-region automated backup um, expansion, like regional expansion. So, yeah, so you can set up automatic replication of system snapshots and transaction logs uh, from one region to a secondary region. So not any region to any region, though. So Sydney can replicate to Singapore, North Virginia, North California, or Oregon. Um, and it doesn't. it's not supported for every RDS engine type. So it, it's supported for um, Oracle, SQL Server, and Postgres uh, at this point. Yeah, so I did some calculation because they charge you not only for the snapshot, uh, obviously in your region, and mm-hmm. the snapshot in the other region, that, that's a known fact. Mm-hmm. But because you're going to use outbound traffic to be able to do that replication, and Sydney is quite an expensive region. We pay 9.8 cents per gigabyte to export. So a one terabyte backup uh, that you want to export going to cost you $100 US. Oof. You need to be sure that uh, one terabyte is fair enough amount of data, but uh, you know it, it's uh, you need to be aware of that costing on top of your backup. But if you were in the US East region and you want to uh, export for Oregon for the body, it just costs you $20.50. Australia tax. Yeah, the cost of <laughs> egress in Sydney is quite expensive. Mm. Hopefully, when we got the Melbourne region, maybe we will have uh, able to copy backup between region at much lower cost than the nine cents per gig. Geez, you'd hope so. You'd hope that they would enable uh, cross-region uh, backup for um, <laughs> for Melbourne and Sydney. That that would be a very cruel thing if they didn't launch with that. Yeah. So that's product is for <laughs> AWS backup, and I think it's it's clear to clarify that uh, AWS backup. You know, you can automate your backup and all of that. You can still, if you go to the RDS console, export your snapshot for all the different RDS to different regions from the RDS console. So this product and this advancement on region is just for AWS backup. Yeah, and fully automated, so you don't have to think about it. It just happens if you have if you after you set it up. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And the last one 
finally in Sydney is a big announcement for a very tiny group of people, I guess. Uh, that is that AWS Directory Servers now supports smart card authentication with a D-connector for Amazon Workspaces. To unpack that a little bit, if you use Workspaces and you have a directory service that you have that you enable smart card authentication for which means basically don't need to use username password but instead a smart card you can now use that with workspaces yeah so two type of cards the the cac card the common access card which is you know the standard really that we used to use that and then the piv as well so personal identity verification which is more like a YubiKey. you can have some biometrics in, inside so instead of using login a password and maybe an mfa you're going to have just your card and a pin to authenticate so um much better way to authenticate much more secure um something what you know and something what you've got so the key and the pin serverless uh we have uh lambda support for uh Python 3.9. That's pretty cool. Um, Python 3.9 is the new version of Python. Uh, it's got a better runtime, uh, can support TLS 1.3, uh, dictionary operation and improve time zone support. And he includes as well some performance optimization. And 3.9 Python will be supported until October 2025. So quite a bit of time to invest into your uh, Lambda function to get the new version of Python. That's cool. The other thing for Lambda is uh, that you can now use Amazon MQ for RabbitMQ as an event source. As we mentioned a couple of months ago, RabbitMQ is the new Amazon MQ option. Flavor. Flavor. So you can now use that for your Lambda function. Much more popular. <coughs> RabbitMQ is much more popular than all the queue service. So I was glad to see that that's been integrated in Amazon MQ. And, mm. and now you can connect Lambda straight to your queue and then it will batch it up to six meg and then, uh, and then uh, process the payload. And yep. talking about that is available in Sydney from day one. That's good. It's a bit different probably to, um, like an SQS integration in that it's not, I don't think it's, it's exactly the same model. I think the, the, that um, invo invocation is only can be configured to happen after a certain number of messages. It's a batch size. Is, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, same for, um, for MSK and right. the other type of, of uh, streaming queue product. Yeah, yeah. It's basically it for Lambda. On the Amplify uh, side, though, Amplify got some love over the past couple months. Yeah, um, I did have some notes about that. So they've got support for conditional backend builds. So they've the, the basically decoupled the, the backend and frontend build process. So you can split those uh, up and only update the backend um, if you actually have made changes to it, which is just going to make life a little bit quicker and easier. And also, if you want to only build the front end, you don't have to um, check in your AWS exports file. It'll automatically generate that and, and um, do all the necessaries um, for you. Um, support for Amplify Secrets. So that's a new thing. So Amplify CLI now supports storing environment variables and secrets to be used in Lambda functions to just do the usual separating the environment specific config from business logic, which is always a good thing to do. There's Amplify Data Store as well. Um, so that's a storage engine that sits on your device and automatically synchronizes data between your mobile and web apps and your database in the AWS cloud 
to help you build real-time and offline apps faster. In addition, it's got new authorization capabilities to to give you flexibility around how you authorize people to get access to different bits of data in the data store. So those things are all quite a nice um, bundle of updates. Um, There's also sign-in with Apple. So that's now supported in Amplify. Oh, and... um, an Amplify Geo, sorry, Amplify Geo, which is an Amplify sort of connector for or, or component that allows you to use to make use of the Amazon location services, just the you know mapping, mapping and uh, geofencing and um, sort of location services product that uh, Amazon's put together not all that long ago, um, but which is you know they've obviously been working on as well. So that will help you embed things like maps into your Amplify apps and access those sorts of services so yeah lots of um lots of good lots of good love for for amplify in the last couple of months the uh, signing with apple for amplified it's called siwa and then in the past amplify supported only google facebook and amazon now you can support uh signing with apple which i think going to expand the, the number of users and that's available in sydney as well because signing with apple is a requirement if you use anything on iOS. Yep, that's right. You can't you can't package it as an app and sell it on the App Store unless it's got support for signing with Apple. Well, only if you use any type of third party authentication. If you only use your own, it's fine. Right, yep. <laughs> Good old Apple. <laughs> They're just trying to help us. They're just trying to help people in the Apple ecosystem from, you know, missing out on the joy of signing in with Apple. It actually is pretty good. I have to say, there's a couple of apps I've got that use signing with Apple and it, 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 it is low friction. So, you know, if you're in the ecosystem, why not just take all of it? You yeah. know, be a complete slave to the rhythm. So anyway, that's, that's enough about Amplifier, I think, isn't it? API Getaway now for Mutual TLS Certificate for third-party CA and SEM private CA. So in the past, to be able to use API Getaway with MTLS, that was announced, I think, a couple of months ago. Uh, you had to use SEM and, and only SEM certificate were accepted. Now you can import uh, your own certificate or third-party certificate into ACM and use it on your API Getaway. I'm taking the example of open banking. The certificates are, are made by the ACCCs. You need to use those. So now you can really help the financial sector use API Gateway on AWS with the ACCC certificate for MTLS. This is the only cloud who support that, by the way. The customer can now import existing cert and then use that for the API Gateway. So it's pretty good improvement on that. The other serverless announcement that, um, that was made in July was around SAM pipelines. Um, so that's essentially a set of templates for setting up pipelines using things like GitHub Actions or GitLab CI/CD code build code pipeline. Um, so the so sorry and Jenkins, yeah. Sorry, I, I I didn't know we had a Jenkins lover in the room. I, I would have I would have made sure to mention. <laughs> I'm not just mentioning. You've got to be quick there. Well, not me, no me <laughs> Jenkins, no never. Jenkins is still supported, which is, which is uh, impressive because I mean, still a lot of companies are using it, but it's still it's very yeah. and it still has a lot of a lot of fans, and and I'm no. I, I'm not I'm not dissing it at all. I'm sure it's <laughs> it's uh, I have used it once or twice myself, but um, you know. 
I, tr- I, I didn't inhale. Um, and it'll also help you do multi-account, multi-region deployments. Uh, so that's that's kind of neat. Also verify that pipelines cannot make unintended changes to infrastructure. And actually, I think the nice thing about this is, so it, it's really, the templates in a way is not all that exciting. But the SAM pipelines stuff that I think is exciting is that it actually, um, and I haven't used it, so I'm, I may be talking through my bum here, but from what I've read, it seems that it, it actually manages the permissions for you. So because obviously it's a little bit like that project um, Ian Mackay wrote, which you know looks at your um, CloudFormation and, and figures out what your um, what your IAM policy needs to have in order to make that thing deployable. It seems to, I think, do that bit of calculus for you, uh, working out what what permissions are needed to um, to make that SAM project deployable. So it's definitely worth looking at. I will be looking at it myself sometime very soon. Yeah, two simple commands, SAM pipeline bootstrap, and then SAM pipeline init. It will create the template file that you can edit, a GitLab CI for the port for the GitLab uh, component. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the GitLab uh, CI CD, you will need to add access keys and secret keys. So, so it Boom. is, yeah, it's not that great. <laughs> yeah. You still need to enter that. It can't use raw yet, but um, mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. it's a good improvement uh, using SAM yeah. to forcing you to pipeline. Yeah, and like I said, if it if it if it gives if it calculates the least privileges um, role to deploy under, then that would be a good a good thing. Let's have a look at containers. Containers. Woohoo! Containers. Ooh. So you'll be so proud of me, Arjen. I actually deployed a container to ECS this afternoon. Yeah, we and it worked and everything. <laughs> yeah. Who knew? I am impressed. <laughs> I knew you had it in you. <laughs> Do you feel like your little boy's finally grown up? <laughs> it's a welcome to 2015 moment. <laughs> hey, yeah, there's no, no, 2015's awesome. There's no pandemic. I love it. I'll, I'll stay here for, can I stay here forever, please? <laughs> so why does you, do you use Fargate as well? Or do you use? Uh, yes, you use yeah, Fargate as uh, well, yeah. yeah. So how easy to use. Um, the cost of entry and the cost of a developer to deploy something is quite quite low. Yeah, the the only um, the, the the main cost was um, was in figuring out the CDK to make it happen. Um, that that's which is usually when you do something new in CDK, it's the it's the um, it's the hours, the quiet hours of weeping that you get uh, into just you know trying to figure out what constructs you're supposed to use and how they want to be configured and what the you know what sort of things it's expecting at various points in terms of configuration, like what kind of objects it's expecting and how you make those things happen. But uh, yeah. You know, it's it, the part of the joy of of building something in CDK is is when you finally get it working after those hours of quite weeping and rocking backwards and forwards in your chair, um, feeling feeling supremely stupid, and then it finally works, and you go, "Yay, I am a god!" <laughs> if you were using uh, Kubernetes, you would have been uh, six nodes later, and then six months later, still not able to deliver your your single containers. So you know, ECS is good. Yep. Yeah, but you're really making the case there for CDK. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, look, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, 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 it's both good and bad. It's awesome when it works, and it's awesome when you get it working. But it can be. It's definitely one of the more frustrating. And look, especially when you're on version two, CDK v two, because all of the documentation you'll see 
everything you look up online to try and help you figure out what's going wrong, all going to be talking about CDK1. <laughs> so nobody's talking about CDK2. So yeah, sometimes that's that's a little bit, you know, why would you be in this business and not want to be on the bleeding edge and, oh, and hurt hurt yourself with technology on a regular basis? That's why we're here. Talk, talking about that, let's upgrade EKS to uh, 1.21 now. Um, so EKS support Kubernetes mm-hmm. 1.21. Um, you can have better cron jobs, immutable secrets, config map, and a graceful shutdown for nodes. So before it was just switching them off. Um, you will need to upgrade to the 117 will be end of support in November. Second of November. Mm-hmm. 2021, so early November. And, uh, AWS is still one lower. So it's 121. Uh, the latest version of Kubernetes is 122 at the moment. Yeah. Also included with the 121 release is in the EKS optimized images. They now have container D support. So if you're following Kubernetes, you know that they are moving away from the Docker daemon and instead will be using container D to run the containers. And that is now supported in 1.21. It's just not the default yet. It, I suspect it will probably become the default by 1.22. And you can enable this just by using a flag in the user data when you do your EKS bootstrap. What's the difference, functionally? It is not owned by, <laughs> by another company. Yeah, right. So is it just to make it truly, like, to, to just to open sourceify and re- remove a reliance on something that isn't an open source project? Yeah, I think that there might be some differences, but I think they are reasonably small. <laughs> and... In most cases, I don't think anybody will really notice them. That said, definitely use this opportunity to test that your containers don't have any issues with the switch before you don't have the option anymore of switching back. Yeah, good advice. Uh, talking about a graceful shutdown for uh, EKS nodes, you can now do parallel node upgrades. So in the past, you had to do one node at a time. Uh, you can do now several nodes at a time if the upgrade is successful and the process makes sure that the old node are drained completely from each pod before uh, the upgrade can be done or the, the node replacement can be done a bit better than it used to be. Do you want to talk about Multus? Multus is not super exciting in itself. That is just the ability to have multiple ENIs on a single pod. What that is interesting, though, is the underlying reasons why that's possible. So the VPC CNI plugin increased pod per node limits. So you can assign IP prefixes to a pod, or rather to the instances they are running on, because in actuality, and we'll get to that in the next section, this is all part of the ability to assign prefixes to EC2 ENIs. So basically, in the end, just with the regular VPC CNI plugin, you can now have, depending on the type of machine, up to 110 or up to 250 different IPs per node. Yeah, so AWS gives you a calculator um, that you can calculate your max port calculator. And I, I had a look at the code and uh, it's kind of capped at the CPU level. So even if you could, I mean, if you want to talk about that that part, because that's another announcement, right? That's, that's not part. Multus, that's part of the CNR plugin increase per, per node limit. So for that, for that, you need to have the natural system first. So it's not all the instances are, are covered, but you know, C5, M5, C6, the uh, Graviton as well, all of that covered. So it's quite, quite easy to use. Uh, you need to have the CNI 1.9 for that. And then you can attach an IP 
uh, v4 prefix to uh, your uh, network interface, so a slash 28. Obviously, that gives you 16 IPs that you can use. There is not the minus 5 that you have in the VPC because here it's part of your VPC. So a couple of considerations for that to be able to use more IP on your node. That's not supported on Windows, by the way. Uh, you need Nitro. You need, uh, like I said, the uh, 1.9 CNI plugin. And then you need to have enough IP inside your VPCs as well because that's going to be configured from that. So in the past, if I take an M5, for example, you have three ENI and 10 IP. That was giving you uh, just 29 uh, pods into your M5 uh, large. Now you can have up to 110. And if you look at it, the, the calculation is three times by 16 by 10. That's 434 IP. So in, in theory, you could have 434 IP on that machine and then you know, 434 node, but the calculator from AWS gives you that cap per CPU. And I saw the, you know, the limit is 110 up to eight CPUs. Above eight CPUs is 250 pod. For a, a very big instance, like an M58X large, you can have up to eight network interface and 30 IPs per network interface. So that will be, you know, 30 times 16. That will be 3,700 IP. Obviously, that's the maximum limit of IP you could allocate to that node. But again, the calculator gives you a 250 cap limit. So for your number of, of, of pods. So quite interesting. Really scaling your, your pods, uh, having more nodes, uh, less nodes, and then more pods running on the same number of nodes if you are not limited by CPU, obviously, or memory. So that's something to enjoy. And you need the calculator. Um, and there is a couple of examples there on the, on the blog. If you want to see. Yep. I'd say one other thing related to Kubernetes that is interesting is the integration from private CA with Kubernetes. Uh, basically, this just means that the ACM Private Certificate Authority now has enough support an open source plugin for Cert Manager, which basically allows you to have all automation for TLS within your Kubernetes cluster. Uh, so ingress, underpart, mutual TLS, all that stuff. So that makes it a lot easier and it's not limited to EKS either. If you still, for some reason, have self-managed Kubernetes on AWS or even on-prem, you can use that. So it's funny because I had a look at the documentation of Set Manager plugin on the open source website and they don't talk about it yet, uh, where AWS did the announcement already. So I'm not sure if they didn't have time to update the documentation or something, but uh, Set Manager itself don't talk about AWS yet. They talk about the other vendors. So that's interesting. I think the last one that I would want to mention in this section is actually a CDK thing, which is AppMesh constructs for CDK are generally available. So AppMesh is what you can use for um, basically service discovery and all the uh, all those kinds of fun things. And it has the usual, it's like STL, but a lot simpler and more lightweight. And even just in CloudFormation, the syntax for configuring it was amongst the worst things I've ever seen within CloudFormation. <laughs> and that's saying a lot. So the level one constructs for CDK would have been literally dead. So the ability to have a sane way to configure that is definitely appreciated. I haven't had a close look at what they look like, but I can't imagine it is anything but an improvement. So... If you use AppMesh and CDK, highly recommend switching to the proper constructs for it. Cool. That brings us then to EC2 and VPC. Mm -hmm. More instances, new instance types here. Yeah, a slightly boring one. 
is the EC2 G4 AD instance sizes. Now I just have smaller versions available, um, X-Large and 2X-Large. A, a bit cheaper to use, like 37 cents for the smallest one with one GPU and four vCPUs. So it'll give you access to G4, but not in the expensive bracket. And it's not yet in Sydney, unfortunately. We'll come soon. Yep. And speaking of not yet in Sydney, the new M6i instances. So unsurprisingly, these are the follow-ups of the M5s, but AWS has realized that they are not dependent on Intel anymore. So they are now using an I suffix to indicate Intel machines. Hmm. So they basically demoted them to just a, a, a suffix yes. on, an, on an instance family name now. They're not, they aren't the instance family. They're just one flavor of the instance family. So yeah, exactly. So the mm. M6 did exist already with the Graviton, right? So now it's clear. You have I for Intel, A for AMD, and G for Graviton. And mm-hmm. we'll be able to recognize all the instances this way. That's going to be uh, much easier, I guess. Yeah. Well, at some point in the future. As, as some point in the future, yes. So uh, they go up to the 32x large with 128 CPU and 512 gig memory. It's around 15, 15% improvement in compute. Price performance, 20% higher memory bandwidth, 40 gig bandwidth for EBS, which is pretty impressive, and 50 gig uh, networking. Uh, but to be able to benefit the 50 gig networking bandwidth, you need to be obviously in the same VPC and uh, use the uh, new ENA, uh, so Elastic Network Adapter version 3. Fair enough. Yep. Small price to pay. So they are in Virginia, Oregon, Ohio, Ireland, Frankfurt, and Singapore. Right. Mm-hmm. And not in bare metal yet. I would be interested to see a comparison between this and the Graviton instances. I'm sure that the Graviton ones are a lot cheaper for AWS to run. Yeah. But I don't know how they are comparable in performance. Well, other than that the Graviton ones don't go over 16x large. Yeah, oh, that would be interesting. Um, another announcement is the EC2 uh, now can support ED25519 keys for authentication. It's in the console, you can use these keys. They are better than RSA keys. Um, so they are elliptic curve based public keys for SSH authentication. So the same way, uh, you go to your console, you click generate a key pair, and then you can download your key. I had a look, it's much smaller in, in your in your text file. Uh, it's a tiny key to compare the, the one of the past, but um, apparently it's more secure. Do you guys know why is it more secure? Is it because of the elliptic curve? I don't know. I just know that I still recommend not using keys at all and just use a session manager. Yeah. But it's always good to have more newer secure options. Yeah. But cool. default key is still the RSA mode, the old old version. You need to specify the ED25519 if you want to use it. Are there any, like, do you need, does that need to be supported on the client side as well? support? SSH supported, yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. Excellent. Good to know. I've learned something today. Thank you. So in the same mention we we had for EKS, uh, now you can do that for EC2 instances as well. So you can attach an IP prefix to an EC2 instance to uh, another network interface. So you can add multiple IPs to your your EC2 instance on the second network interface. Is there an upper limit to how big a prefix you can add? 
All right, so it's always a slash 28. Uh, okay. You have no choice. Oh, it's always a slash 28. Yeah, but okay. um, it's a number you can you can attach depending on the number of network interface you have. Okay. Uh, so you multiply basically the limit. So we were talking about the M5 before. It's three network interface, 10 IP per network interface. So mm-hmm. the 10 IP, you have basically 10 times 16. That's mm-hmm. 160 IP minus one for the EC2 instance itself. So mm-hmm. you can have basically 189 IPs on top. So yeah, pretty cool. Neat. And for IPv6 addresses, you can do it as well. And then it's a slash 80. Yes. Um, which I believe is actually... A billion addresses. How, how many is it? <laughs> it's still actually only 10 IPv6 addresses, but you can have both of them. Right. Yeah, but it still needs to be contained inside your VPC because it's just a construct inside your VPC and, and your subnet. Right. So you, you need to uh, res- respect the limit of that. Mm-hmm. Cool. So if that did happen, I would recommend the customer to create maybe another range of subnet inside the VPC, attach a new slash 16 range to the VPC and then create an EC2 layer for EKS or for other things into that specific subnet with a specific range attached. And then you can slash your 16 into number of 28s, and then that will be give you a lot of IPs to be able to consume in the VPC on top of the mm-hmm. normal VPC. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've, we've skipped over the custom time windows for scheduled events. That's, that's neat, a neat feature, is it not? Yes, that is actually quite nice. So basically you can set a custom time window for when scheduled events happen. These are the type of events that you don't have any control over that AWS for example, needs to cycle which physical hardware your instance is running on. And that always involves some downtime. So in the past, the only way to manage when it happened was to do a restart yourself. Now you can just say, okay, please do it during these hours when nobody is using my instance anyway. And then you can just go to sleep and don't have to worry about it unless there's an issue and you wake up the next morning to a whole bunch of alerts. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, the um, obviously there's a scale question there, isn't there? So if, you know, if you had like one or two instances that they told you, hey, we need you, we need to reboot this by X period of or by X date. Yeah, power cycling a few of them or you know rebooting a few of them is is, is no big deal. But yeah, if you had thousands, that's be able to uh, specify this this window. I guess probably becomes a little bit more significant. Yep. But then moving on to auto scaling, I think the big one there is. I say auto scaling now lets you control which instances to terminate on scale in a slightly misleading title because it was already possible to de- roughly define what how it worked. Yeah. So you had the regular termination policy, so like oldest first or newest first or things like that. But now you can define a lambda function to determine which one gets scaled in. So if you build a fun lambda function that just randomly picks one, then you've got a completely run. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's more to have a more controlled kind of management of the, the instance and, and having more complex calculation of what to reboot, uh, especially yeah. some instances are special uh, for some, some type of... Uh, if your application is stateful yeah. um, and it's mid-transaction or there's, there's, there's some kind of long, long-running session that someone's got, you can write a Lambda to say, hey, is, is, this, is this instance running a current open session for yeah. a user? So, yeah. That, that that would be a good use case for where oh, web you'd want to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Any anything, I guess, where that, like, as I say, it's a like a long running session that that's that's going to be terminated 
Um, but yeah, you don't want that to happen. And you don't care so much about whether, you know, which one was launched first or last. You just care about the fact that, that some of them are actively doing something you want to keep them doing. Yeah, you don't want to impact the customer on the mm. side. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Mm. It is. One other one that I want to mention here. In a way, it's small, but it's useful for VPC security group rules. You now have resource identifiers and tags. They've probably always existed, but they were never available to us. Basically, in the past, if you made an update to a security group rule, it would delete and recreate it. Now, instead, you can have it. Now, this should theoretically be able to then do an actual update and you can refer to them as well. Yeah. I suspect we'll over time see functionalities get released that take advantage of this. For now, it's mostly a nice to have and doesn't really change much for anyone. Well, it's uh, if you look at auto remediation with AWS config or stuff like that, then it will be able to find the security group ID and delete delete it. Where in, before you had to name exactly the type of ports and uh, rules you had to be able to change it. So now it gives you a better referenceable uh, rules to be able to uh, monitor, I think, security groups. That's probably an integration with AWS Firewall Manager as well that will help. So more control on security group at a larger scale are see coming. This this announcement rang a rang a bell for me. The um, CloudFront announces new APIs to locate and move alternate d- domain names. Have you either of you ever been stung by this one? By what this addresses? I don't think so. So you can get a situation with CloudFront where you've you've uh, al- you've attached a C name to to a CloudFront distribution and then somehow lost access to that account. And you want to recreate, you want to, you want to assign the same C name, but you want to point it to a different distribution. You can't. Like it can only be pointed to one distribution at a time. So the pro- the problem was that you couldn't actually figure out where this um, C name was actually set up. So and you couldn't, like there was no information. AWS couldn't help you. And there's sort of a privacy issue because it could be an account that you don't have, you're not entitled to have access to, right? So if you have like a, a domain set up that you use for like test purposes like test dot you know my dev house.com and you've if you've used that somewhere and then you've lost access to it you can't actually even find out where it was but now you can actually get information about um, which distribution and and what region it was in oh the account id that's right so it's partially obfuscated they partially obfuscate the distribution id and account id um, where the c name is but at least you've got something to go on and you can go back and look at your lists and say okay I know that account ID is probably that account. Now I can go and find where it is. And you can imagine if you've got a lot of CloudFront distributions and a lot of accounts, uh, it could be kind of annoying. And yes, it's something that has bitten me years ago, but um, it was very frustrating. So so I think this is... Um, There'll be some people who'll be going, yay, <laughs> that's really handy to have in future. So you do the investigation and you still must contact AWS to change the CNAME between accounts, uh, but at least you know which information to point them to, right? So that's, that's good, yeah. Yeah, and I guess there's privacy issues, you know, and account ownership issues and all that sort of stuff. At least, at least this gives you a clue as to where to go. Well, then let's move on to DevOps. Yep. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of things here for CodeGuru Profiler. This is the part of CodeGuru that runs on your applications Never use it, just support now Python. Profiler used to be only with Java recommendation. Java. Mm-hmm. Now we can uh, support Python 3.6 to 3.9. Yep, so that's good. It's a lot more useful. 
to some of us. And there's an integration, I think, with Lambda function as well, automatically onboarding and processing Lambda functions. So you can, when you publish a new Lambda function, have your code go profiler, uh, have a look at it. So it's good. Mm-hmm. That is good. Code build supports publicly viewable build results. That's nice if you use code build. Yeah, I had to look at it and understand why we want to publish logs <laughs> on the internet. But um, it makes sense when you read the announcement. It's about um, <coughs> uh, helping public Big builds and, and uh, you know open source contribution from different mm. people without having to give them an AWS account to see the logs of the of the code. So um, you can provide them a URL and then mm-hmm. you can see the logs from your code build and the code errors and integrate them with GitHub. So or useful for the open source community. Yeah, uh, yeah, the part of the open source community that uses code build for the builds, <laughs> which I'm sure is a massive amount of people. <laughs> I can't tell if you're being sarcastic, Ian. <laughs> I suspect you might be. Uh, your suspicion might be correct. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, hey, look, they've got to be in the market to to, and maybe this is the the thing they need to do to to get get all those open source devs flocking to AWS. Yeah, I can see everybody move away from things like Circle CI or GitHub Actions to go to CodeBuild. It's all those free those free hundred minutes of build time every month, isn't it? You know, what's not to love? Is it 100 minutes? Something like that. With code build? I think so, isn't it? Could be, yeah. I mean, compared to the completely free GitHub Actions and stuff like that. <sighs> what's really free, though, you know? Yeah, you, you, you get 100, 100 build minutes of general one small per month. So, yeah, it's 100 minutes. Anyway, it's, um, it's an improvement. So... Let's not be too negative about it. That's right, exactly. We are AWS ambassadors. It, is, it behooves us to be positive. I just wanted to use that word, behooves. <laughs> I'll make sure not to edit it out then. <laughs> Thank you. You could maybe just make a like a, a repeating GIF, or a, a repeating like a, yeah, like a, a get a make a ringtone. <laughs> Guy says behooves, 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 behooves. My apologies for everyone who just had to listen to a <laughs> repeated section section of five ten seconds of guy saying behooves. He made me do it. It was worth it. With every moment. Um, well, you might like that. Announcing CDK Pipeline GA, Guy. CDK Pipeline is a construct collaborate to AWS Cloud Development Kit. Yeah. Uh, can do pipeline as code. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I can already do pipelines as code. And, um, and I like to keep my pipeline building outside my CDK project for, yeah. but look, it, it, it does meet a need because, yeah, building CDK projects, like I've, I've done pipelines for doing it, but because of the nature of the CDK, um, the cloud assembly, you can't, you kind of need CDK to deploy it. So I think CDK pipelines are something I'm going to have to come to terms with and probably start using. But it, there is that inception problem of, of it being pipelines, you know, pipelines inside pipelines and the pipelines that you create in CDK pipelines can modify themselves um, when you use them. And and, and that my, that makes my brain hurt. So I'm going to have to slap myself around a bit and and just, you know, pull myself together and just, you know, embrace, embrace the strange and uh and learn to live with it 
much like we do with COVID. I will learn to embrace CDK pipelines and learn to live with the virus of CDK pipelines. So the announcement is, is about helping team to add stages to the pipeline mm -hmm. and then moving from account to account, from Dave, UIT Prod, and all the region as well, without changing your initial code. And just a couple of variables, new pipeline, boom. It's the fact that they're self-mutating that, that I find, that it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, they're, they're going to have the Delta variant of CDK pipelines. It's, it's more, more, it's more, it's more pipeline than previous versions. I don't know. I, I, it makes me feel unsafe. But All right. yeah. No, like as I said, I, th I think when they first came out, uh, I looked at the syntax for making them and thought, why have they given us a whole different syntax for creating code pipeline inside CDK in this form? Like we've already got syntax for using CDK to create code pipeline. Why have we got this new construct of a CDK pipeline? But I do understand wh where it fits because like I said, you've got cloud assembly that is the output from CDK and you can't just deploy it, you know, without CDK getting involved, I think really basically is what I think I'm, the, the conclusion I'm arriving at. So yeah, it's a necessary evil probably. But yeah, I wish they'd stop talking about them self-mutating because, you know. Okay, let's move on before you self-mutate. Uh, before I melt down completely. So AWS CloudFormation does support more stack per AWS account so that the new number is 2000. I remember Oof. the days when it was 20. I don't know mm. if you remember this guy. So it was 20, then 200. Uh, so previously 200, and now it's 2,000. Is uh, there a reason it has to always multiply by 10? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's easiest to just add a zero to Because <laughs> yeah. okay. in the end, it's still just the default values. Yeah. You could already get this by just requesting it. Mm. More interesting, I think, is actually the ability to import CloudFormation stacks into a stack set. Mm-hmm. I don't know about either of you, but I've had my share of uh, built CloudFormation stack sets, and I usually do that initially by testing it as a regular stack. Yeah. And this prevents the need to tear it down after you've done that, and you can just turn it basically into the stack sets and be happy with it. Oh, is you, for example, that example given in the announcement is if you have IAM all, so you might want to refine your IAM all into one account, you know, clean it up, make sure that your all your IAM all are correct, and then you upgrade that to a stack set and then start deploying across region, across multiple accounts. So you can have kind of seed your compliance from, from one account to, to, to a stack set. So yeah, it's quite an interesting concept. Yep. And speaking of CloudFormation templates and stacks, on the system manager side, Application Manager now supports full lifecycle management of CloudFormation templates and stacks. Mm -hmm. I looked a little bit in this because it makes me slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> Not you too. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to turn this into a third. Can, can we get a, a trained counselor to join us next next month? <laughs> um, basically, what this does is it allows you within the Application Manager to have a template library. Uh, this includes both templates from AWS as well as ones that you build yourself. So you store this code then in the application manager. So you don't put it in source control or maybe you can put it in source control and then automatically import it into application manager, which kind of makes me wonder why. Mm -hmm. And you can share these templates across accounts as well. Basically, this should be an easy way for teams to pin up things. So similar to a bunch of other solutions that already exist in that space, but managed through system manager. Maybe good for sandbox, but I don't see that taking up in the other prize, right? I will use all the, all the tooling, like you said, to be able to do that. Okay. 
Now you can do inventory and push compliance of stop instances uh, using System Manager. In the past, uh, stop instances didn't appear in your report. Now they will report the last time they were seen, uh, and so you can you can find out if some instances are not compliant anymore according to your compliance uh, patterns and and uh, push compliance state. Mm-hmm. And of course, the thing everybody has been waiting for is that you can now automate your upgrades of SQL Server 2012 using Systems Manager Automation. I'm so excited about that. <laughs> um, but actually, you can upgrade 12 to 14, 16, 17, or 14, 16, and 17 to 19. I mean, there, there is a couple of upgrades there, but I, I, I don't see an enterprise doing this and hope that System Manager is going to do the right thing. I will build new and migrate your data with a new DNS name probably. But I, I don't know. Maybe we can trust System Manager to do everything for you. Maybe that's the future. Hmm. Yep. And so you've got to do. You've got to upgrade your SQL servers before the seventh of December next year, when it reaches end of life support. End of support for the twenty twelve version. Yes. To the twenty twelve version. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Unless Microsoft extends it again, I think they're still supporting Windows XP, isn't it? Or did they finally stop <laughs> doing the extended extended support for that? Security. Network firewall. Off you go, JM. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, so firewall manager now support uh, central monitoring of VPC route for AWS network firewall. So you want to ensure that your route in the VPC can are routed to the network firewall if you use it for egress traffic or for east-west traffic. So um, uh, AWS firewall manager will ensure that, or you can you know make sure that all routes are not routed directly to the internet gateway and ensure they go through your network firewall to get filtered. Or you can use all sorts of different systems to be able to do it, like SCPs to block people touching your firewalls or the thing like that, or using VPC sharing. Another extension for Firewall Manager, which suddenly is named becoming less and less making sense, but that's okay. You can control security group, uh, knuckles, routing, all sorts of things now with Firewall Manager, WAF, and not only firewall stuff. Cool. Certificate Manager provide expanded usage of imported ECDSA and RSA certificate. In the past, you could have in a CM only a 1024 RSA or 2048 RSA certificate. Uh, now you can import a 3072 or 4096 key as well. And another one with the elliptic curve, a digital signature, so ECDSA certificate uh, to be a bit more secure with TLS. The last one, I think, in security that we'll mention, because it was a bit of a light month, despite the fact that Reinforce was supposed to happen, is the Backup Audit Manager. Oh, yeah. Uh, Backup Audit Manager basically lets you audit your backups. It uses AWS Config under the hoods and creates reports for it. You can have policies set around all the things for your AWS Backup things, so uh, retention and similar things, and this lets you keep an eye on it. So yeah, you, you can set up a framework. It's called, so AWS give you one with the five rules just to monitor your RDS, for example, your Aurora backup, your FSX backup, just to make sure they happen, for example, or having a minimum frequency uh, applied. And then it's basically AWS config, like Carlton said, under the hood, we're going to monitor these, these backups and then report uh, with a couple of CSV reports or report back to audit manager itself which is the other AWS product for compliance if you're compliant in your backup strategy. So some company need to be regulated, need to keep, you know, 
backup for seven years and all of that if you can copy them to different accounts. So uh, that's a new product and a good extension. Yeah. Couple of improvement as well on Security Hub. There was 10 announcements in July and then 18 new foundation control announced in August. So that gives us 159 security control now in the foundation security for Security Hub. This product is getting better and better. Um, can monitor security groups, monitor ECS services to dump a public IP, Elasticsearch domain uh, for logging, Redshift, uh, SQSQ need to be encrypted at rest. I mean, a couple of best practices that you want across your account and uh, give you that report on it. Let's look at data storage and processing. So that's Guy can talk about his favorite memory DB for Redis. I don't um, know anything about this other than it looks a little bit like um, AWS got a bit crapped off with Redis and decided to uh, to cut them out um, of the picture. I don't know. What what's what, what, what do you guys make of this? There's probably some justification in the sense that I think they've probably, there's some, been some traditionally some limitations of Redis on AWS that they're, they're kind of sidestepping here. I think they've, they've, they've optimized it for as the way AWS likes to split storage and compute. But yeah, if you were Redis, you'd probably be a bit annoyed, wouldn't you? No, I think it's the same. I mean, you had Elastic Cache, right? Who was supporting Redis, and you could do clusters with that. You could do backup with that. Mm. It's more designed for caching, and maybe the name was confusing for people who wanted to use Redis as a primary data store. It's still possible to do that through Elastic Cache, but it's not recommended according to AWS because you could lose data. So mm. the Elastic Cache is more designed for uh, environment where you could lose data or session data, for example. But if you want to use Redis as a real primary database, then they recommend to use memory DB instead. And more powerful, not available in Sydney yet, but, uh, you know, you use DBR6 instances like any other type of database. Uh, you get charged for data written per gig, uh, and you can do snapshot, you can do recovery. So it's more like, okay, you want to use Redis for primary database, use memory DB. You want to do just caching in front of your Postgres, mm-hmm. then you use, mm-hmm. use Elasticash still with Redis as well. Yeah, and how well it compares to regular Redis. I think that's something that we'll find out in the future. From what I've seen, Redis itself says it's still limited compared to what they offer as an enterprise solution. Yeah. But obviously, this is V1, so we'll have to see once it gets improved a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, as you say, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it evolves. I guess it just um, seems like a, a kind of an interesting play. Still in data storage, uh, AWS Data Sync now can copy system. Uh, access control list uh, mm-hmm. from Windows to FSX Windows file server. So that's a big improvement uh, when people have, you know, big NAS storage on-prem or on Windows file share on-prem. They have a lot of NTFS kind of security control list and access rights. In the past, you couldn't transfer that to FSX. So now DataSync can do it. That's going to be uh, an easy way of migrating. And especially if you have uh, file access auditing for your FSX servers enabled, then you can really see who is accessed what. So for compliance, that's going to be a, a very good improvement as well to migrate mm. data from on-prem NAS to FSX. Yeah, that is very neat. And the other thing here that I know you're happy about, JM, is the RDS proxy can now be created in shared VPCs. Oh, yes, that, that was a problem we had at one customer. We use shared VPC quite a lot. Uh, and uh, we couldn't create uh, RDS proxies. So now they can be created into a shared VPC by the VPC tenant or subnet tenant. Uh, it's available for MySQL and Postgres and Aurora with MySQL or Postgres, depending on of your proxy. And uh, so you can now deploy your proxy in, in that uh, VPC and share that across multiple accounts. So that's, uh, that's a good, good improvement. 
Um, there was an announcement about Lightsail light offering block storage for storing static content. So I had a look and said, like, oh, oh, wow, maybe it's going to be cheaper to store in S3. And unfortunately not, S3 is still cheaper. However, if you have a lot of outbound traffic, like more than 100 gig a month, so I did a calculation for 5 gig of data for storage, same price, but if you have 100 gig of egress traffic, then it will cost you around $30 if you were all that on a normal S3, uh, because the Lightsail process is always similar. Uh, you have uh, egress data inclusive it's only three dollars and it's free for the first year so uh, maybe some people would like to have a look at that and then put some data on s3 for losing that cell for a while might be a bit cheaper than using s3 but only if you have a lot of egress traffic otherwise it's more expensive than s3 itself i want to uh, kind of distort the purpose of the product the purpose of the product is about creating the static content for your light cell right so mm. if you have a light cell WordPress or something you can use now light cell object storage to store images and stuff like that. You can still use S3 in the past, but and you put a CD in front or whatever. But uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yep. So you can use it for free with the included 12 month trial as well. For five gig and then for 100 gig is just $3 US. But again, you can have up to, you know, a lot of egress traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, so you save a lot of money if you have a lot of egress traffic. Otherwise, it's more expensive. Some new services or things to Game GA, EBS, IOT, Block, Express Volumes. These are the almost hand type IOT. Yeah, you can uh, produce up to 250,000 IOPS and 4,000 uh, megabit per second throughput. So it's massive, up to 64 terabyte of, of capacity. A lot of high availability. <coughs> so um, if you need very super fast stuff uh, for Oracle, SAP, ADA, SQL Server, or SAS Analytics, then that's a product you might want to use. Um, yeah, only in, in uh, Singapore, in Tokyo, in APAC. On the Redshift side, there is cross-account data sharing. That can be nice. Yes. So, yeah, data sharing uh, across accounts. So the, the owner of the data in the cl- uh, Redshift cluster need to create, so the producer of the data need to create a data share. And then you can nominate an account where another specific customer, the second environment, can uh, attach that data and then basically... Uh, access your data with uh, uh, the secure fashion and you will pay for the query when they run it but uh, your data can be shared with multiple organizations outside your AWS account without giving you giving them your AWS account so that's available in Sydney and you need all a three node type only mm-hmm. um, the pricing is free but obviously the owner of the cluster the data pay for the redshift cluster the other redshift announcement is around um, improvements to performance on spatial queries so if you're using redshift and spatial queries then you might be interested in that yep. uh, there's a whole bunch of other minor announcements in data storage and processing i would suggest have a quick look at the show notes. Yeah. So there's nothing really worth a in-depth discussion about. The one is double edge uh, support NFS now, uh, which is interesting before supporting only S3. So um, with supporting NFS, you can transfer a bit faster, up to 400 megabit per second, your data to uh, the double edge using NFS protocol instead of using S3 protocol. And uh, that's still going to end up on your S3 bucket. So there was still something to talk about. It's only mm-hmm. snowball edge uh, created from the uh, even of AIML, uh, I have nothing. Uh, text tract announced improvement in detection of text, digit, dates, and phone numbers, and uh, handwritten transcription. And that's available in Sydney. So better capture of data uh, for text tract. 
Yep. I'll still be impressed once it recognizes my handwriting. <laughs> I haven't written the code that could do that, I'm sure. In SageMaker, I was surprised Notebook Instance now support Amazon Linux 2. I thought that was the norm, but no, it still was Amazon Linux 1 uh, into mm-hmm. SageMaker Notebooks. So that will be supported until April 22. But then after, you will need to have version 2 of Amazon Linux and still use your snapshot of Amazon Linux 1 after that, but that won't be supported uh, and updated anymore. Yeah, and there's eight or so other SageMaker-related announcements that um, if you're into SageMaker, you should check out in the show notes, as well as four announcements around Kendra. So if you're using Kendra, you can uh, enjoy uh, reading about a price drop. You can uh, look at a WorkDocs connector and a web crawler to enable website search. So Kendra's got a few updates as well. And now we're on to the other cool stuff. Yep, there's a whole bunch of... Sitewise announced. Yep, yep. So Sitewise is the piece of software you can run on-prem to to connect to your local um, data historians and, and on-prem um, devices using Modbus and other industrial IoT protocols to collect data and push it up through the cloud, mate, to uh, AWS. So there's been a bunch of updates to uh, Sitewise, including things like being able to set time zones and custom time intervals for metric ag- aggregations and, and such like. And now the most important announcement, Ian, is about Chime. Oh, yes, that's in there too. Yeah. Uh, it's just the SDK, though, not the actual app. Ah, okay. Sorry, I was excited for a moment. Yeah. Should, should we explain what Chime is? <laughs> To anyone who's never been on a on a call to AWS, if you work with AWS, you know that Chime. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 quite it's quite good. There's nothing wrong with Chime. Chime's good. It does it does what it needs to do. Anyway, um, so if you're using Chime SDK, you can capture media, um, live media for video, audio, and content streams now through the SDK. So other things here, Amazon is now gracious enough to allow you to give them money before you do anything. If you have a US bank account, you can do that. You can pay in advance. And I'm sure there's probably some advantages to that. Maybe you need to spend your budget before the new financial year. I think that's probably the primary use case is you're shifting money around so that you don't have to pay tax on it this year. Put a whole bunch of cash in AWS's pocket and spend it in the next financial year. AWS for health and health lake are basically together that's we've talked about these kind of verticals before where aws focuses on a specific sector and tries to build solutions for them and as usually is the case we have not much of an idea of how useful this will be to to those who are in those sectors so it could be great it could be not as good i haven't heard anything either way have you it, it is really a us centric and mm. so we could we could use a similar type of compliance here in Australia, but uh, it's really HIPAA eligible service yeah. uh, and healthcare for the US. So we can aspire ourselves to be able to build the same thing in Australia, but more focus on you know compliant medical and transcribed medical. So focusing on the medical sector in the US. Yeah. But uh, I think the big announcement of the month is the RAT three uh, application recovery controller, which is uh, a new service um, who's become GA now that you can use to do high availability across um, multiple environments and especially across ICs, across regions, and even with on-prem inclusive. So it's a quite an expensive service, but it's really the first service. Uh, I can see in the different class sector that you can uh, really very 
granular and not only analyze your DNS, but as well analyze your autoscaling group, analyze your database, and analyze the different layers of your application to be able to create highly available application with a very small RTO. So yeah, great product. It, it's, a, it's a global product, so you can use it across all the region. A couple of terminology though you need to define, uh, you need to define a cell and that can contain an application or with different component of that, that cell. Uh, and then that cell can be per region uh, or per AZs as well. Uh, then you create a recovery group for that specific cell into another region or into another AZ. And then you create a resource set into each uh, of the environments. So a bit of work, but when you use product like DynamoDB, tables who are replicated across regions when you use you know uh, load balances autoscaling group and all this product is quite interesting to use that full component of the AWS high availability environment with Rate to create a very highly available environment. There is a very good example uh, using CDK and in CloudFormation on GitHub that we put the link in. It's a bit expensive. It's $2.50 an hour just to run a cluster. So don't leave it run for too long. But um, I think it's uh, for very highly available application uh, for uh, financial sector <coughs> banks could still be interesting to to use uh, that product across multiple region, especially when Melbourne open in Australia. So presumably, though, you'd need that to be running all the time. So it's 2 or 50 now, but there'd yeah. be no point in, in having something like that if it wasn't running all the time, right? It's 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 about higher revenue. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> you're kind of committed to, what, $2.50 times 720 so that's, what, 1500 yeah. bucks a month. Yeah. yeah. So that's on top of your Wrath history, obviously, if you want tests you can do and analysis you could do before, but Wrath uh, was really focusing on the DNS itself of the application. Now you can go deeper at each layer mm. of your application. So if yeah. one region, your database is compromised, then you can switch the application to another region. Yeah. yeah, and presumably you can write as many kind of checks yes. of your environment of each of the cells that you've, you're running. So and I just had to throw the word cells in because we're we're, we're cool, uh, and yeah. cells is the new K- Kubernetes. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not in IT in the cloud talking about cells nowadays, you, you're obviously not not uh, up with the latest stuff. Yeah, so you can write as many tests as you like, right, to check whatever bits and pieces you need to to check to make sure your infrastructure is ready to go. Yeah, so a cell can be a region or can be a availability mm. zone as well. So uh, it depends how you want to organize it and how you want to slice it, but uh, it's a about your recovery set and then how you're going to be able to fail over one cell to the other. So yeah. Mm, yeah. Cool. Have a look at the blog it and, and the, the code that deployed if you want. Yeah. So cool, cool stuff. Cool addition to the to the AWS offering. Cool. And let's say let's end it on a high note then. So in that case, I will thank you all for listening. I also want to thank the user group's new set of sponsors. We have new sponsors for the rest of this year. CMD is our new gold sponsor, and we have also welcomed Sivo and Fursant as our newest silver sponsors. Excellent. That is always good, so thank you to those three companies for supporting the user group, and hopefully we'll be able to have in-person events at some point to celebrate that. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. In the meantime, though, JM, thank you for coming along again. Oh, all the pleasure, Arjun and Guy, always fun. And always uh, very instructive to uh, look at all the BS announcement of the month. And Guy, thank you too. Thank you for having me. And thanks again for your friendship and ongoing entertaining entertainment value of uh, being able to do this. You're welcome. And um, everybody listening, thank you again. And 
We'll be back next month. See you then. Woohoo!